From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. I have always loved scary movies my entire life, and by extension, I've always loved the spooky and the strange and the things that are weird and found in the fringe. Obviously, I have this podcast. If you also love scary movies, then you probably also have your favorite list of films. In fact, every Halloween, there are always publications that put out their top 10 best horror movies, or I've even seen lists as large as 100. I, too, have my list. And the number one spot has remained unchanged since the time I sat down to make it. For the horror enthusiasts out there, you'll be very familiar with my number one, the movie The Exorcist, which is almost always in the top five of everyone's list, just because it's one of the few horror movies with an A-list cast, a great script, and brilliant execution. I mean, how many horror movies have been nominated for the highest awards in the business? The Exorcist back in the day was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and actually won for Best Screenplay and Best Sound and also nominated for seven Golden Globes and won for Best Motion Picture, Best Supporting Actress for the Young Linda Blair, Best Director for William Friedkin, and Best Screenplay for author William Peter Blatty. When the movie hit theaters in 1973, people lined up around the block to see it. Theater goers fainted. Those who didn't faint either loved it or screamed and fled the theater. It was something more than just a horror film. It was a social commentary, a cultural phenomenon, something no one had ever seen before and probably haven't seen since. It was so shocking to some that the Roman Catholic Church saw an uptick in new converts. And the fact that the novel the film is based on by author William Peter Blatty was based on an alleged true story is also fascinating. And that played into the tug of war that occurred during the making of the film between Blatty and the director, William Friedkin, who was less of a believer but was captivated by the story. The movie works so well because it's not just a horror movie reliant on jump scares like so many modern horror movies. Sure, it's got its gore moments, but it's so much deeper playing on the role of a mother dealing with a young woman going through the inevitable changes brought on by puberty, but also ties in religion and the fear of things that you cannot see. Through much of the movie, there is no real soundtrack, and as a result, your ears start to pick up on the most subtle sounds, putting you in a state of hyper-awareness. And in the end, there isn't really a happy ending. This movie pulls no punches. As of the release of this podcast, we're mere weeks removed from the 50th anniversary of the release of The Exorcist. So in celebration of my favorite horror film, I spoke with writer, producer, journalist, and Hugo and Locus Award-nominated author of more than two dozen books about filmmakers and film history to talk about all things The Exorcist. So welcome to this week's mystery, The Exorcist with Nat Siegeloff on From the Void. No, I, I I appreciate you taking the time out to to do this. Um, on the topic of probably my favorite horror movie of all time. So, oh, good. Thank yeah, you. yeah. So I I was excited when I found your book. I thought, oh man, because you know, there's there's so much, there's so many layers to it, and the the individuals involved were some interesting characters uh, to begin with, like Friedkin, and was kind of an odd guy. <laughs> so. Um, mm-hmm. 
But why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, I should probably introduce you. So um, and, and let, make sure to correct me if I'm saying this wrong. Is it Seg- Segalov? Yes, yes, with an A sound. Okay, perfect. So uh, welcome to the podcast. And uh, again, uh, for, for folks joining, uh, this will go out obviously later, but for folks who are listening at some point in the future, um, we are here to talk about your book about, and I had no idea, by the way, it's the 50th anniversary of the movie The Exorcist, my favorite. I still think it's probably, to me, still holds up as probably the most terrifying movie ever made. So what what... What got you into, first of all, writing a book about The Exorcist in the first place? How did you uh, come? How did that come about? My stock joke is that I've been possessed by The Exorcist for 50 years. <laughs> Once we get past that, I was a local press agent in Boston when The Exorcist opened. And my job, because we had arranged a day before screening, Mr. Friedkin gave us the permission to show it to the press the day before opening. My job was not to see the movie, but to stand outside the doors of the theater, keeping strangers from coming in and admitting just the press. So it opened on December 26, 1973. And if you do your math right, the day before opening would have been Christmas Day. Quite a quite a little stocking <laughs> stuffer there. We had to drag the press out of the bosom of their family. And for some reason, they didn't mind it uh, to see The Exorcist. And so I've been bedeviled by it for all this time, because not long after that, again, remember, this is Boston. My bosses and I were indicted by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts for, let me get the billing right, obscenity, um, immorality, and uh, blasphemy, and corrupting the morals of a minor. Uh, A crazy religious nut named Rita Warren, who lived nearby, had brought her underage daughter to see the movie, disregarding the film's R rating. And for some reason, she wasn't charged with child endangerment. We were charged with those crimes. And of course, the case was thrown out, uh, as it turned out on the first day of Lent. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, William Friedkin gave me a call. I'd never met him before. He called me at the office and said, Nat, you've got to stand up for the First Amendment. You've got to do something about these people. And we were friends for 50 years. Oh, that's incredible. So... So you were there literally at, at the birth of this this film that still to this day, um, every Halloween when you're looking for a list of horror movies to watch, it's always, yeah. always in the top 10. And it's, um, again, to, to in my opinion, in my humble estimation, still probably the most terrifying movie of all time for a number of reasons that we, we can talk about in length, I'm sure. Um, but this is a, a film that's based off of uh, based on a true story. So um, probably best to begin at the beginning. So uh, based on a novel by William Peter Blatty, which is based on a, a true story about a young boy, actually. And and if I remember correctly, was was he located in Boston as well? No, uh, the the true story, and I put quotes around the word "true" because I think there was some contrivance by the boy himself and by the Catholic Church. But in 1949, in Cottage City, Maryland, which is a small town near Bethesda, which doesn't help you very much, near Silver Spring. Well, I, I was born in Silver Spring, which was near there, and when I was not possessed. In near Washington, D.C., uh, there was a boy who was supposedly freed of demonic possession by priests. And William Peter Blatty saw an article about this in the Washington Post, and uh, it sort of stored it away because he was a he was a student at Georgetown University studying you know private literature and, and of course religious studies at Jesuit school. And later, when he couldn't get a job writing Hollywood comedies anymore because styles had changed, 
he took his savings and sat down and wrote a book that scared the hell into people, literally. So it's based on a true story. And my book, The Exorcist's Legacy, 50 Years of Fear, recounts the original story through an enormously successful and, and diligent reporter named Mark Obsasnik, who has written about the possession case. He's a, just an incredible shoes-on-the-ground reporter. He was able to find out who the person really was who was supposedly possessed, and we, we go from there. Oh, wow. So obviously, you know, some, some debate as to the um, uh, validity, uh, the actual events uh, themselves and whether or not this, this kid was actually possessed. But still, even, even aside from that, quite a few, uh, we'll say, artistic liberties, right, between uh, the story as it was told initially and what became The Exorcist, the novel. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, nobody's head turned around. I mean, William Peter Blatty made this very clear to Billy Friedkin that if Reagan's head had turned around, her spine would have snapped and she'd be dead. And so they inserted the cutaway. So like an owl, you're not really sure if it goes all the way around. And I mentioned that because Blatty says improbable doesn't mean impossible, which I think Sherlock Holmes may have said, too. There are a lot of things that happened in the movie that actually happened. Now, that's my provocative opening statement. They actually happened, but they didn't happen because anybody was possessed. Because Friedkin's brilliance in making The Exorcist was to do it as if it was a documentary. So between the makeup of Dick Smith and the brilliant mechanical effects of Marcel Vercotier, they contrived to make the bed shake and rise and Linda Blair to float and doors to crack and things to fall over because they actually happened physically in front of the camera. And this veracity gives the film a, a truth and a sense of immediacy that has entranced and scared people for half a century. Yeah, it's one of the remarkable things um, in, in reading up on this over the years is is just to what lengths Friedkin went uh, went to uh, to create these effects. I mean, this is not this is f long before the advent of CGI and, and mm. things of that nature. Um, you know, I, I remember the scene where you can see their their breath, you know, because the, the room has gotten so cold. I had read a rumor about the fact that Freakin brought in this refrigeration system just oh, sure. to get the, the room cold. Yeah. The whole bedroom set was enclosed in a cocoon with powerful, powerful air conditioners, which of course made so much noise that they turned them off when they were going to shoot. But then the presence of the actors and the lights warmed the room up to the point where their breath no longer showed. So they had to go and, and cool everything down again. So they could only get about five or six shots a day. And this is why it took so long to do it. And of course, everybody on the crew is wearing down jackets, but the guys playing the priest and poor Linda Blair is there under an electric blanket, but they're freezing their pills off because of this air conditioning <laughs> unit, but which I think worked for the scene dramatically. Absolutely. I mean, there, there are some scenes in that movie that um, just brilliant um, from an artistic standpoint. And, uh, you know, freaking kind of... Um, uh, use some other tactics that we would say probably would not be allowable today. I know uh, where you're going. I know where yeah, you're going. The, the starter pistol. <laughs> Talk about that. Well, you know, Irwin Allen did this too on the Towering Inferno, and some directors have done it because they want to get a startled reaction. And most people have a startled reaction when a gun goes off near them. Actors detest it. In fact, Jason Miller was saying to Billy, don't do that again because we're actors. Billy would fire the pistol if he wanted a startled reaction from somebody. And it got to the point where the actors were so used to it that one day Max Fancito came on the set and he asked Owen Roisman, the director of photography, good morning, Owen, where did Billy hide the guns today? I mean, this is, <laughs> this is Max was a cut up. You, you wouldn't know it from his work in the Bergman film, but Max Fancito was a very funny, very dryly funny man. And of course, the big thing about what Billy does is he likes to hit actors. 
Now, let me be specific about that. Father O'Malley, William O'Malley, who was an actual priest playing Father Dyer in the film, Father Karras' best friend, it was like two or three in the morning, and he had to give the last rites to his friend who just fallen down the exit of steps, and he couldn't do it. And everybody, meanwhile, is very cold in Washington, D.C. They're, they're trying to keep themselves warm, and they're not getting the scene and not getting the scene because, let's face it, O'Malley was not an actor. He had a day job. So what Friedkin had to do was say, Bill, do you trust me? Of course, O'Malley said, of course I trust you. And Billy said, okay. And he hauled off and slugged the priest. The priest was so shocked that he went into tears, which is exactly what this scene needed. And you can see now his hand is shaking when he's administering the last rites to his old friend. Billy had, of course, already turned the camera on. Then he apologized to him afterwards, which I think is nice because, you know, he, 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 Billy confessed to the priest and the, and the priest gave him absolution for hitting him. <laughs> that, that's a wild story. It's, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, because yeah, you you can see the authenticity in the moment, the 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 real emotion, and um, you know again, probably things you couldn't get away with today, but but at that time in that moment, they just worked. A director's job, especially a brilliant job like William Friedkin or John Ford or people like that, is to create a situation on the set where the actors can behave like the characters, and Friedkin was a past master at that. Yeah, it's um, the other thing that uh, that I want to go back to that you said a moment ago that <clears throat> makes a lot of sense to me now. Um, one of the things that always has stood out to me about this film is just sort of the way that they take their time. Um, it's not like a lot of modern horror flicks where there's just something happening every second and it rush, 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 you know, action, action, action. This movie, it, there's a lot of quiet and mm. there's not a whole lot of background music or noise or a score or soundtrack or whatever so it's almost it almost plays on your senses in in the way that you are heightened because you're waiting for that noise or 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 that you know something to happen so you're almost on alert the entire movie and i thought i always thought that was extraordinary uh extraordinarily clever and so when you say that they they tried to film it sort of like a documentary that makes complete sense to me now that's very observant. A lot of films today and a lot of television shows will have this kind of low rumbling score in the background to keep you off your balance. And then they will do essentially Mickey Mousing all the, all the important parts. Well, if you have a good story and people know what they're doing, you don't have to do that. You know, the exorcist still works because the tension is there because you're waiting for something to happen. It's skillfully done, skillfully staged. Uh, you don't have the time for that in a lot of productions today. So they have to introduce music. You know, the director, Martin Ritt, who was, uh, besides being a friend, you know, made films like Norma Ray and The Great White Hope um, and, and Sounder, would, would always say that if he did his job right as director, he shouldn't need music. Well, in, in his later years, he learned that music is very, very helpful to underscoring what you're trying to do. And the actors just did the job right, too. They used tubular bells and a few other musical cues, but they didn't need music for the rest of the time. And you're right. It had that documentary reality about it. Yeah, I think I think between that technique and just the the nature of the fact that I you know when talking to a lot of my friends they mentioned the same thing that the the element of this film uh, that heightens the level of of uh, fear is just the, the the notion that you know in some sense this is something that's possible that this could have it's not so far out of the the realm of possibility you know a lot of people grew up uh, you know going to church and and things like that and so there is this sense that oh gosh. This could happen to anybody. And, You're right. You're yeah. right. But 
the, the church has brainwashed Western civilization for over 2,000 years, and other religions have done it for longer, that there is a personified devil and he's going to come and get you. So the film was able to reap that, those thoughts which have been in people's minds for such a long time. Yeah, talk a little bit about that, because when this film came out, uh, there was an interesting reaction from specifically the Catholic Church. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's company policy. I mean, that's what The Exorcist is. In fact, I would argue that William Friedkin and William Peter Blatty made a more religious film than anything Cecil B. DeMille ever did. They're, they're talking about a personified devil, and this is what Bill Blatty was trying to do with his so-called trilogy of faith, The Exorcist. Legion, which he made as a film, as Exorcist Three, and then the Ninth Configuration. And that is, he said, once he found this story and he started writing it, he said, if he could prove that there was a devil, then perhaps there was a God and angels and a life everlasting. And that's what he did, what he did, he tried to do it. Now, Friedkin fought him somewhat, saying he wasn't making a commercial for the Catholic Church. But in fact, it is an incredibly religious film. And the more you believe, and in some cases, the more you fear, the more the film works. Yeah, that's very true. Um, talk a little bit about, though, the, the kind of dynamic between Blatty and Friedkin, because it does seem at, at some points that they didn't necessarily have the same vision for what the film would become. I have to tell you that before I'll tell you this, and that is back in the 60s, William Friedkin was the flavor of the month after he'd arrived and won some awards for documentaries. And Blake Edwards, the great writer, producer, director, wanted Friedkin to direct the feature film version of Peter Gunn, which was a television series that was very popular. He sent Billy the script, and Billy sent it back saying, this is the worst piece of crap I've ever read. And he told that to Blake Edwards in his office. And Blake Edwards said, well, perhaps you'd like to meet the writer. He's sitting right outside. And the writer was William Peter Blatty, who came in the room. Edward said, okay, tell the writer what you told me. And Friedkin said to Blatty's face, it's the worst piece of crap I've ever read. And Blatty <laughs> laughed and said, you know, you're right. And nobody here has had the guts to tell me that. Wow. So Blake Edwards made Peter Gunn and it was a bad movie, but Friedkin uh, kept Blatty's affection. And so when Billy had made the French connection, Blatty sent Billy the manuscript for The Exorcist, for the book. And Friedkin says, I, I want to do this. So Blatty was in Friedkin's corner all along. When it came to make the film, Blatty had turned into a script which was all full of flashbacks and flash forwards and dissolves and special effects. And Friedkin said to Blatty, your script is no good. Write your book, which he did. And of course, wound up winning the Oscar for it. And then Friedkin Blatty had perfect mind meld until the last part of the film. Now, there's 16,000 different points of view about that. But... Friedkin showed the version of the film to Blatty, and they both liked it. They liked it very much. But then Billy wanted to shorten it. He took some scenes out that he thought were redundant. And the most important scene was a scene on the stairwell. And I hope anybody who's watching this has seen the movie recently enough to remember this. Between Fathers Karras and, and uh, Marin, in between exorcisms, and Father Karras says, why is this happening? Why, why is the demon doing this? And Father Marin says, quite sincerely, because the demon wants us to be revolted. He wants us to see how horrible mankind is and to ask ourselves, how can God possibly love any human being who can be as vile as this? Well, Friedkin took that out. It was only about a one-minute scene, but it bothered Blatty. And it bothered him for decades until Billy put it back into a new director's cut of the film, which is on the new 4K, which has been released on DVD and which is being shown in theaters to celebrate the anniversary of The Exorcist. They wanted to make it more on the nose. That was... Blatty said his purpose of writing it. Billy thought it was redundant. 
So they had a bit of distance between them, but they wound up being very close at the end. Oh, that's interesting. Um, one of the other things that I found fascinating, uh, just in terms of um, the preparation for making the movie, uh, was some of the disagreements, or maybe not even disagreements, but sort of um, kind of push and pull when it came to casting. Um, what I found most fascinating is, you know, thinking from today's perspective, you don't, first of all, you don't see a lot of big name directors taking on a horror film to begin with. And then secondly, you don't see a lot of like, typically a ton of A-list actors, you know, uh, taking roles in horror films. And, but at the time, there were a lot of huge names that were up for potentially being in this movie, which I thought was interesting. I, you know, I saw names like Marlon Brando and Paul Newman and, and things of this sort. Um, but then Freakin decided he'd rather go with like lesser name or lesser known rather, mm -hmm. uh, actors. Talk about that a little. I thought that was really interesting. Well, as, as far as a, a, an A-list director, remember, he just won the Oscar for The French Connection, taking on a horror film. you got to remember, as much as you and other people think that The Exorcist is a horror film, the people who made it didn't call it a horror film. They said it's a mystery, um, a murder mystery, uh, a supernatural murder mystery, because that's really what the, what the plot is all about. Who killed the movie director? And yet, Billy, I guess, wanted to be the star of his own film. He wanted to have faces you had to see before so you wouldn't bring the baggage of a Paul Newman or a Marlon Brando in with you. I mean, Jane Fonda was offered the role and, he, and she passed by saying she didn't want to do capitalist bullshit. Uh, <laughs> but Ellen Burson did it and not only, I believe, got an Oscar nomination, but proves herself. I mean, she, she was very She's gracious incredible. to speak to me for the book. Uh, probably our finest living American actress of her generation. The work that she's done is just incalculable. And she also pulled a special stunt when it comes to the new actresses film, which we may be able to talk about later. But you wanted people that you could believe in, not people who you'd think of the other movies they'd made. And that's important when you're making a film as outlandish as the actresses really is. Yeah, it's it's uh, it was really sort of the first of its kind at that point. Now, obviously, you know, as you referenced, there's been multiple iterations since then and knockoffs and, and, and what have you. Um, and. Bloomhouse, uh, more recently, you know, is, is preparing to, uh, they've, they've bought the rights to that franchise and that property and are preparing to release a, a new version, um, starring, you know, with Ellen Burstyn in it, which I thought was very cool, uh, coming out, I, I believe this October, um, October 6th. Excellent. Oh, very soon. They moved it up a week. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's very exciting. Um, I, I'll be honest, though, I, a lot of the iterations that they made, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, uh, kind of the first sequels after the initial sequels were made, um, just sort of fell short, I felt. It kind of paled in comparison. You're being nice. Yes. Um, if, if there is a curse to The Exorcist, it's that any other Exorcist movie made after the first one hasn't done well. Yes. Of course, Exorcist 2 is kind of the fight club of horror movies. Yes. The first rule of Exorcist 2 is there was no Exorcist 2. You know? <laughs> yes. um, and then bad. when it was, it was well, we, we go into that in, in, in uh, The Exorcist Legacy because the, they didn't start out being bad. And I don't want to talk about it any more than I have to. But it's one of these movies where, as one exhibitor said, there should be two lines, one to sell the tickets and a second line to give refunds on the tickets. It, it just <laughs> didn't fly. Bill Blatty made Exorcist 3, which was based on his novel Legion. And that has one of the greatest shocks in movie history, which I will not give away here. And it's a much more philosophical film. And for that film, he sold the rights to his book to 
um, Morgan Creek Productions. And since then, Morgan Creek has made the two prequels to The Exorcist. They allowed Bill to recut uh, Exorcist 3. They also are involved with Blumhouse and Universal in these new threequels of The Exorcist. So they they put their money where their mouth is, and they've done an awful lot, folks at Morgan Creek, to shore up when they thought the films didn't work. They ordered reshooting. I mean, it was an enormous amount of expense, and they're really strongly behind it. So I can only hope it goes well. But the other films have not been as successful as the first one because I think the first one came along at a time when it was just the right moment. It also has much more humanity in it than any of the other films has. And again, the other films have special effects, but the actresses really doesn't. And there's something about honesty that seduces an audience. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very, very true. And I think, um, you know, considering the fact that all these other things were sort of happening around that time, you know, you, you have the height of sort of almost like the uh, the height of serial killers at that point. So, you know, people in society are are sort of on edge to begin with, you know. Um, and then you have this film where literally you have reports of people passing out in the theater. and, and, and Yeah. So talk about that, because I don't know that we've seen anything like that since then. Uh, when we saw the film the day before opening, you know, we didn't know we were supposed to throw up. But apparently, <laughs> after that, we had people just running from the auditorium and hoping they make it to the street outside before they let go of the Technicolor yawn. Some of the managers all over the country reported this. It opened in 22 theaters. And, you know, how does the audience know? A, how do they know there's a hit? And B, how do they know they're supposed to puke? But somewhere along the line, this got to them. And in fact, Warner Brothers did a very informal survey. And this may surprise you. Of course, you've read The Exorcist's Legacy, so it won't surprise you. The people who were more apt to get sick would do so not in the possession scenes, but in the hospital scene where Reagan is having this arteriogram, uh, a legitimate medical procedure done, and there's some blood that's spurting. And again, the the accuracy of it is is so anatomically correct that it made people sick. And the people who fled from the theater, and this is something that destroys my own pride, tended to be largely men. Women could take it. The explanation that was offered at the time was women our mothers, and if they can go through the, the, the pain of childbirth, they could certainly watch a horror movie. But that was what happened. It surprised everybody at Warner Brothers, mostly Ben. And that's that's the legacy of The Exorcist. And then, of course, the people waiting in line to see the next show would watch people coming out ashen from the previous show. And they'd like waiting to go onto a roller coaster ride, be hyped up to see it as well. It became an actual phenomenon. Yeah, it's 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 unbelievable. I mean, I like I said, I don't know that we've seen anything at least to that extreme anyway uh, happen since then. And and uh, talk about going viral before going viral was a thing. Right. You know, what better marketing can you get? I know the movie that makes you puke. I mean, how did people know these things? How do people know who to vote for? How do people avoid all advertising? You know, what did Sam Goldman say? If if people don't want to see a film, nothing can keep them away. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they stayed away in droves. You know, who knows how it works? If we could bottle that, we'd have successes. Absolutely. Well, one, one of the things that I definitely want to uh, talk about is uh, we talked a little bit about some of the, uh, the adult actors that really brought this film home, you know, from, uh, you know, from, from the, the actors who played the priest to the actor uh, who played um, 
you know, uh, the, the mother, Ellen Burstyn, and, and such incredible veteran actors, you know, Max Van, Van Sydow, obviously, probably being, uh, aside from Burstyn, the most well-known mm-hmm. in that film. But, but really, this film could not have been as good as it was without casting the character of Reagan correctly. Mm-hmm. And that... That poor woman now, now in her uh, probably fifties or sixties, uh, she took a beating while making this film. Yeah, she did. That's why she didn't want to wear the makeup for heretic actresses too. It took several hours to make up Linda Blair, who was an extraordinarily bright, personable, and very centered, very psychologically normal young woman. In fact, Ellen Burstyn kind of adopted her, although Linda's mother was there too, and Billy treated her like a father. I mean, they all treated her very well. There were rumors going around that she'd become possessed in the making of the film. Well, if you've ever been on a film set, uh, William Goldman said, the most exciting day of your life is your first day on a film set. And the most boring day of your life is your second day on a film set. It takes so long to do everything. So it was mostly waiting between scenes, between setups. And and Linda was not possessed. She was, if anything, uh, coddled and catered to and and rehearsed. but she managed to, to hold up very, very well because it's just plain old boring. And she couldn't run around the room, remember? She was the one who was stuck in the bed. So she has emerged as a remarkable woman who has opened a charity that helps rescue and, and help pets, animals in need. And that's about as blessed as anything you could imagine. Absolutely. Um, and, and again, her her uh, her performance in this film is just absolutely yeah. remarkable. I mean... Yeah. Uh, the the things that they they had to put her through um one of the things that that comes to mind is um the scene where her body is kind of like flipping backward and forward you know very violently um as you said there were no special effects in this film they actually had to physically do that and to my knowledge she still has back pain to this day she had some lasting uh effects from that yes uh the device that Verkutier built to flop her up and down they had formed a body cast that would hold her securely, but the straps came off at one point. And so in the movie, when she's being flipped up and down, she's screaming for it to stop. She really is screaming for it to stop. Wow. That's, that's absolutely incredible. Um, and, and again, you know, it, it comes out in, in film, you know, they probably didn't necessarily intend on an, an, an actual reaction, but they certainly got one and it plays out in the film. Um, you know, it's again, to this day, in my mind, the most frightening film of all time. Um, And and again, I think it goes back to that, the nature of that sort of documentary feel and the fact that, that there are more quiet moments in that movie than there are loud action. You know, we all think of those scenes with the, um, you know, throwing up pea soup and uh, the head Mm. spinning around and the body flopping back and forth and the crucifix scene and all those things. But I, I think if you go back, there are more scenes where, you know, nothing is really happening. They're building the story, but there's nothing spectacular happening necessarily. You have to believe there are four stories that wind their way through the exorcist. One of them, of course, is who killed Burke Dennings. And that's the one that Detective Kinderman is finding out. You've also got a priest, Father Marin, who is coming to face to face with an old enemy. You have a priest who's lost his faith, Father Karras, who in the end does the most remarkable and, and holiest thing he can do. He sacrifices his life for someone he's never met. And then you've got the most overriding story, which is the story of a mother going to any length possible to protect her child. You don't have these in the other movies. You really don't. And if you have even parts of them, you don't have the earnestness with which these fine actors and the great writing and the great directing pulled off. It's a very good, that's a very good point. 
thinking back to the other sequels and even some of the the films that have kind of uh, paid tribute to, to to the original Exorcist, uh, they sort of sort of really heavily lean on the um, possessed scenes, you know, where they you know they're speaking and you know. Uh, in a voice that sounds like, you know, 10 octaves lower and, you know, saying repulsive things. But really beyond that, that's really sort of for shock value. But they they really kind of fall short when it comes to the actual story itself. Yeah. Screenwriters and dramatists know there's two things about a, about a story. There's there's the plot and there's the subplot. The plot is what happens. The subplot is what the story is about. The plot of The Exorcist, everybody knows. A little girl is possessed and she's freed of demons. But what the story is about, is about protecting the child, it's about loss of faith, it's about reestablishing your faith. And that's why it has such resonances, and that's why what I tried to write about in The Exorcist's Legacy, and what I think people take away from the film, that you, you know who these people are. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the, the, the legacy of the film. Obviously, like we've, we, we've talked about, it did result in, you know, cause any major studio that's going to have a hit on their hands like that, you can guarantee a sequel is coming. And we know the sequel, the initial sequel fell widely short. Um, Exorcist three, I thought was very good. I think as a standalone film, I, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, mostly Bradley Duriff's, uh, uh, part in it, but, um, uh, but then since then, some of the sequels were eh, okay. Um, you know, I, I th- yeah. <laughs> Although the, the, the problem of doing a prequel is everybody knows how it comes out and you, you can't kill Marin. You can't put people in jeopardy. First, Paul Schrader tried it with a wonderful script by William Wisher and the company didn't like it. So they hired Rennie Harlan to reshoot most of it, turning it into a, a film where the camera acts like a, a house fly going all over the place. Schrader is, uh, no question about it, very, very smart and also has a great religious background. And so you can say, and I'm being glib about this, Paul Schrader made a film, but Reddy Harlan made a movie. And the two prequels are like that. There's a lot of thought in each of them. I think that uh, Dominion, which is Paul Schrader's film, has a lot more in it. But the thing about an exorcist film is if you make an exorcist film, you've got to have an exorcism. And Schrader's problem was that it's about a boy who is very, very sick, and as he becomes possessed, he gets healthy. Well, that's not interesting. You know, what's what's interesting is someone who starts off healthy like Reagan and then becomes unhealthy when she's possessed. And so right away you have a problem, and they try to work around that by adding other things, other residences that should have worked, but unfortunately they, they, they simply didn't. It's just one of those things. But then Morgan Creek came along and threw millions more to try to make it work. So I got to hand it to them too. Yeah, and what's what's interesting, I, I don't I don't know a lot about this uh, the sequel that's coming very very soon, uh, October sixth, I think he said. And um, other than the fact that there are not one but two possessed young ladies in this film, so are they just doubling down like twice your you know twice the uh, twice the power I guess with with two two victims per se. I, I I don't know. I haven't seen the film. I, I wish it well. David Gordon Green, who's a co-writer and the director, was very, very gracious in giving me an interview about the film for the book a year and a half before the film came out. He probably shouldn't have been speaking to anybody, but he was really smart, really smart, and very kind in speaking to me. And that's that's verbatim in The Actress's Legacy. Uh, also, Ellen Burstyn, of course, did a wonderful thing. She felt confident in what David was doing, and she agreed, after some hesitation, to be in the film. 
And of course, what she did was, in a sense, what Father Karras did, was she she managed to get them to pay her so much money to be in the movie that she gave the money to the Actors Studio, where she's one of the directors, to set up a graduate program for future actors. Now, is that generous or what? That's awesome. That's really cool. Well, and I think uh, it's kind of a testament to what Bloomhouse has been able to do with some other franchises where I think, you know, you can see like Jamie Lee Curtis came back for for the Halloween movies. And so there is some precedent to suggest that uh, they've had a lot of success with some of these classic franchises and that, you know, it's it's a it's a good risk to take, I guess, and for her. Yeah. Yeah. Jason Blum is very smart. He's got his genre selected and he has depth of knowledge in the whole thing. So I wish them well. I, I think they're trying to branch out now into other areas which, you know, is always dangerous, but they certainly have the credentials to uh, to keep on with the horror uh, and frightening genre. And I, I hope they do because he's he's no fool. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what what other things were kind of surprised you? Obviously, there's a great amount of research that went into to your book. Uh, were there some things that you found particularly, uh, particularly surprising um, as you were researching the film that maybe you didn't even know way back when? Well, I get asked that question a lot. And the point about research is you're not surprised a lot. I've even tried to contrive an answer. But I think the thing that, if anything, surprised me the most was coming from William Peter Blatty and how devout he was and how he really believed in this. And how, although he wasn't a cultist, he certainly believed in afterlife and in spirits. And it's it's this sincerity, I think, that I wasn't really prepared for. But I was able to study. I, I've talked later to his first uh, firstborn son, Mike, who has just been a, a, a total friend now. Uh, and, and Blatty becomes richer to me the more I hear about him. He also gave me a hell of an interview when I was writing the biography of William Friedkin, which came out in 1990 and was called Hurricane Billy. He took a lot of it off the record at the time, but years have passed since then. And I was able to put it back on the record where he really talks about his life and his doubts and what he was trying to do with all these properties. So I think I wasn't really surprised, but I came to appreciate Blatty so much more. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you, you talked a little bit about um, sort of the the goal between those two men in making this film, uh, not necessarily being to make a frightening horror film, as it were, but they had a slightly different goal in mind. Well, Freakin wanted to make a film that was true to its soul, and Blatty, I think, was trying to convey a message. I think it's one of these things where the the right forces have brought people together at the right time, and it, it worked. But I don't know anything more profound. You know, in, in, in Hollywood, you, you make the movies that they let you make. And uh, the film that Billy made after that was Sorcerer, which took 40 years to come into prominence, which many of us loved at the time. But it damn near killed his career because it lost so much money. And yet it may be his best film. But think about somebody who made The French Connection, The Exorcist, and Sorcerer all right in a row. Talk about a legacy. So that's, that's Billy's legacy. Oh, that's incredible. So um, one last question for you. Um, what, what do you want people to take away from this book on the 50th anniversary, uh, right before uh, a new version, some, some, new, uh, some new blood in the franchise uh, comes out? Well, I'll tell you what I found, and it's from two different types of reviews that I've read. Having been a critic for 20 years, I try not to read reviews, but these two stood out in me. One of the reviews said, it's more than you'll ever want to know about The Exorcist films. And the other one said, for those of you who know The Exorcist films, you'll already know it. <laughs> so whatever it is, I think this may answer the question so we can move on. I hope people buy the book. I hope they keep it on their shelf. And I hope they use it to better understand the movies as they see them again on video. 
Thanks for listening to this week's mystery. If you like this episode or any of the prior episodes, consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing so you don't miss a single new episode. And consider sharing with a friend. Next week, we'll be back with a brand new mystery. And until then, you've been listening to From the Void. <laughs>